Hi, this is Jeremy, CTO and co-founder of the United Manufacturing Hub, and with me is Josef Weitel, founder and CEO of Software Defined Automation. Hi, Josef. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, maybe to get started and for the listeners to get to know you, what is it that you do in your spare time? Normally in my spare time, I try A, to get away from the computer, spend time on the road cycle, be in the mountains. No surprise, I'm Austrian, so that's pretty in the genes, I think. Other than that, I'm really interested in where technology is going, uh, mm -hmm. not necessarily from an automation perspective, but in general, listen to podcasts, uh, reading books, what, what's the next wave? Yeah? What is something now independent from the topic where we're working in? What's something that currently interests you the most? Not surprisingly, I also ask myself, what can generative AI do right mm -hmm. now? It's pretty powerful, I also have to say. And admit, it struck, struck me bit by surprise how powerful this model's got. I would have expected this in a couple of years. And currently, what I would like to understand is, if we pair those large language models with semantic models, what can we do in certain domains? What do you mean with, with semantic models? Semantic models is like building up a model what certain elements mean in a certain domain, like really providing context to just pure text mm. and then have those mm -hmm. text-based models kind of combine it and then deliver better answers to very domain-specific questions. Now, getting back to the topic, you've had quite the impressive journey regarding your job. So you started by doing a PhD. I think it was like during the Siemens time, if I remember correctly, and now you founded a company what led you down to, to this path where you are at the moment? Yeah, first of all, I don't know, it's uh, impressive. Let me kind of really tell you the story, who I am. And actually, I'm an industrial electronics guy. In Austria, you can do your A-levels and also kind of really get a trade. And it's industrial electronics, industrial automation. I then started, uh, studied computer science, a bit of business, and then, as you said, went to Siemens. And quickly, surprisingly or not surprisingly, landed in the industrial software space, where I helped to kind of build up what's now very impressive in a portfolio, industrial software, CAD systems, simulation systems, MES systems, but also on the industrial control side, where I worked in product management and a variety of other support functions to really kind of shape that portfolio for certain areas of the world. I was then asked by AWS to help build the partner ecosystem mm -hmm. for industrial software, like basically from Autodesk to Mitsubishi Electric, which is also from CAD to PLCs by Microsoft to product management in the Azure Industrial IoT Edge, AI and Edge Analytics. And the, the whole string basically, if you so will, is I came from industrial automation, uh, industrial software, and also got a glimpse of what's possible in the cloud and modern software development practices. And this is also where kind of the idea of what we do at Software Defined Automation stands for. So you have now experience in, in all the automation and you know the AWS side. Where do you see the, the industry is heading? How do you see the factory of the future? So let me, let me answer a bit on a, on a high level and then come down to, to, mm -hmm. to the specific level. So what I see is, that especially when it comes to OT, we are kind of in a parallel universe where uh, up from where mm. microprocessors were developed very quickly, the relay control logic 
was replaced by microprocessor-based control logic, which ultimately led to the uh, advent of programmable logic controllers, PLCs, robot controllers, and so on. And then that path kind of went forward, and then the IT went from microcontrollers to hosts to PCs to Intel-based data centers to the cloud. And in the software, it went from like monolithic systems to like modern software development practices, ultimately to microservice architectures. And what I see mainly in the, in the interconnection was actually chips getting ever better and the PLCs got ever better. These are mm -hmm. computers that are optimized for durability, reliability, and real-time control. But what has not proliferated is all the best practices. What has not proliferated that if the PLC gets always stronger and better, the programs get always bigger that are on that PLC. That's the opposite of what we've seen right now. I'm not saying the microservices are the, the silver bullet for everything. What we've seen is that you can write once, deploy anywhere in, uh, in modern software development. What you can see is that the hardware, actually, the compute is like a consumable in the cloud. That it can mm -hmm. be ramped up and can be ramped down. What we see is all the developer tech, DevOps, continuous integration and deployment. That stuff that has not found its way to the degree that we see it moving forward in IT and OT. And back to your question, what we see is we see extremely powerful, really, really capable systems. They are also enriched a bit by yeah, you can can load an edge module into a PSC. But what we but what we do not see is we do not see a paradigm shift to like say, okay, that's a path we cannot move forward. Or I would say we are currently at that moment of a paradigm shift. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So I think we will see still some innovation in the existing technology. I think we are really on the brink of kind of, I always jokingly say that's, that's the last domain that has not been conquered. I think now is the time where that either is addressed or the challenges like labor shortage of skilled automation engineers like need to ramp up certain types of productions, be it battery, be it other productions that we need to bring back to Europe and to the US, will not work. I, I once talked with a person from, from OT. He said, I'm not saying like I agree or disagree with the statement, but he said that why should we as OT go near to IT? We as OT, we're very unflexible. The IT people are, they're flexible. They should come to us. They should adjust to us. What would you say to that person? First of all, I think there is some truth to it because OT deals with physics. Once you are with physics, you are not as flexible. So just plainly saying everything you do in, uh, in IT is applicable in OT, mm -hmm. it's definitely not wrong. I would not necessarily agree to the definitiveness of that statement. I'd like to rather put things in first principle thinking. What's the ultimate problem that you have? And which tools do you have available in technology, IT or OT, and then build a new system? This is, by the way, why we put a lot of focus on immediate benefit in mm -hmm. what we build. That means, first of all, you have a PSC. PSCs are hard to manage. We build a management system of PLCs where you can deploy, you can Uh, put all your uh, passwords in, they are connected, you know exactly what the files are, files I mean the programs, which are parts of a proprietary 
files that are defined, the file structures defined by the specific PLC vendor normally. That's the world where the OT engineers are. So in that regard, we ultimately agree by building a system that catches the OT engineer, the automation uh, engineer, the PSC programmer in their world and brings immediate benefit and gradually see what's applicable and what can we bring in. I'm also of the view that it doesn't mean, it does not bring a lot of value to just bring concepts in that do not fit the work. Give you an example. Mm. It's especially in the field, once you are with service technicians, it's not that they work in, like say, two pizza teams mm. that I came from Amazon, like collaborate a lot. Very often it's not required in the first place to kind of have branches and then do merging meetings and whatever. It's just required to understand what is the latest version that someone mm. actually deployed. Yeah? In that regard, implicitly we do it. Uh, we, we work again uh, towards that, that, that statement. Yeah? I would just say, I would not say uh, it's either or. Yeah? It's mm -hmm. like, what can we really deploy? And super, super important is what brings value now? Because I think the whole industry for that whole movement, there have been a lot of bubbles that have not yeah. materialized where we believe that time is over. Yeah? Uh, no one in OT, especially where people ultimately get fired if production stands still for too long. Mm -hmm. yeah? No one wants to take that risk. And we take this very serious. So for us, the automation engineer is the, and the automation and the PLC programmer is the ultimate user of our software. And we try to be as useful coming from right now, from day one. You already started playing a little bit what you do, like with managed PLC, maybe for, I think the readers can themselves look at your website, softwaredefinedautomation.io. How would you explain it in your own words? How would you explain it to them what you do? What, what's your vision and what's your mission? Actually, let me break it down for you. The, the vision is very simple. Uh, we could always also say it's, it's, it's obvious, not, not genius. Yeah? Now, we basically do to the computers in the factories what mm -hmm. the cloud system providers did to the computers in the data centers. So also for the viewers that are not 100% familiar with in the 90s, early 2000s in data centers, people walked with DVDs and CDs into the data center and flashed SAP systems and operating systems and so on. And that's the case right now in factories. So there is a variety of technologies, so it's not, not necessarily always the case, but the majority that we see with our customers, people are with laptops with where Windows applications are installed in plethora of different versions. They go to the electrical cabinet where these computers sit, they plug in, they change the code. There is very little oversight and what has been deployed. Also, there is a huge dependency on these specific computers. So our vision is to turn software, uh, factories into software systems. Very mm -hmm. simple, very plain. Like the cloud turned data centers and IT infrastructure into a pure software system. So you can script data centers and pull them up. Yeah? And we believe that has some value for the reasons that are laid out, like geopolitical, like demographics, and so on. And one important thing is people want to have modern tools. I think we have in all Western economies a shrinking number of people uh, with a certain qualification that we need. We have the responsibility to build the best tools that attracts talent. We take this very, very serious. Looking at software-defined automation, turning factories into software systems, the vision is simple. How to do it is not so simple, actually, we learned. So where do you start? 
First of all, these industrial computers will not go away anytime soon for good reasons. They're extremely reliable, they are cost efficient, they do real time extremely well. Yeah? So very deterministic. And as a matter of fact, over 90% of the factories are there and factories are there for 15 to 30 years before they get an overhaul. So if you want to have an impact, you need to manage the existing PLCs. This is what we call PLC ops. Basically, we build a SaaS tool that is a management system for PLCs where you can connect all of your PLCs to the cloud. You know all the data of the PLCs. You then also get the program that's deployed linked to the PLC. You know what is deployed. You can do a backup. We also allow to open the engineering system that often has a myriad of different versions that are not 100% compatible in a browser. So from having a brick ruggedized laptop that I, where I need to be in the factory, you can also kind of, if you are out of your shift as automation engineer, just look it up on your tablet and help your colleague on the phone by directly going into that, into that computer instance, actually, which is, if it's principle thinking, essentially is. That's point one. We call this PLC ops. And mm -hmm. that um, helps to get a way of like all the heavy lifting and shifting, yeah? like the non-necessary productive work. We do this across different vendors of PLCs. That's also interesting to understand. There is also part of these tools from proprietary vendors, which then have like a complete system. But as a matter of fact, if you are a manufacturing company, you buy machines from different vendors and either you force them to take your PLC technology, uh, which is not mm -hmm. always possible, or you end up with a SUE basically. Mm -hmm. Because these systems are not so standardized, we eliminate the SUE. We make the management of these different technologies much simpler. We can do Siemens, we can do Rockwell, we can do Beckhoff, we can do all types of codices. Derivatives, I would say. And there we have uh, customers, like I can name, for example, Henkel, that use it for exactly that. So now, first of all, was PLC Ops, the management of the existing PLCs. Once you, and, yeah. And with management, what, what do you mean with management? Is it just like reprogramming the PLCs or is it like changing the IP addresses in the PLCs? How would you describe for a person coming more from the from the IT side what you need to do at those PLCs? I mean, you could say, hey, the PLC, you just put it in and you leave it there like 10, 20, 30 years, just like this. I know it, it's there, like how people do it in pharmaceutical or I think it's steel also. They just put it in and then they forget about it. What would be cases where you manage it or reprogram it? Yeah, first of all, this is uh, what you express is a uh, the higher you get the more you uh, people believe productions never change it changes all the time you should really double click it and this might be simple things like i want another data point in via opc ua that mm -hmm. i can then analyze that's a reprogramming action yeah? mm -hmm. i have a motor that i need to exchange from one vendor to another that's a reprogramming action then as a computer scientist i have to say there's a lot of magic numbers in PC programs, which is basically uh, logic and data is mixed. That's not nice. You should not do it, but that's the reality. So process optimization, also very simple things are very often reprogramming. Things that you would do in environment variable. Now thinking from the IT perspective, where you have like Docker container and you have an environment variable, you would just change the environment variable is something that's in PLC code is typically hard coded. Is that is that correct to say? That's what we see. More often than not, unfortunately, changing the speed of a conveyor belt, for example. Mm -hmm. What I did not mention is 
We have a connectivity stack and we change the model how to interface to PSCs because what we see, what the current predominant pattern is that, that there is a layer two network, like a KC network that's not connected. And then you have a VPN. And if a third party, like be the machine builder, be the system integrator, any type outside of your factory wants to kind of remote access the PSC, mm -hmm. you give the credentials to. This comes to the point where we have customers that do not know who all has the credentials. If you change it and you do not know, you might exclude someone that you do not want to exclude. So they don't change it. That's an inherent security risk. We changed this. We have put a lot of effort in our secure, secure cloud um, environment. Then we have a own, we believe very secure, very innovative connectivity stack that easily comes through all types of firewalls. So it's easy to install. And then with also the ability to have the IDEs, like the, the Windows applications in the browser, every access is just defined by a user with a right. So we mm -hmm. change this completely from giving someone access to a network where you then do not know what that person does. You do not know from which uh, computer with which other programs installed. You get to a clean, managed environment where you can ah. have complete access rights and so on. Yeah? Which is a use case, for example, Enkel also uses for the machine builders. And that ultimately leads to less travel, less CO2, less mm. cost, because the reality is that companies pay for PC programmers to fly around the world. Yeah? Mm. And that's not a good use of human resource, but it's also not a good use of general resource in terms of CO2 emission and so on mm -hmm. and of time. Yeah? And not forget the human factor of people being away from their families. Yeah which will be more and more important. Okay, so what you do is you have, and I think this is really interesting, point of security and access control. What you're saying is traditionally everyone has like the root password with the PLC and everyone program it. And nowadays it's just to make the people move to your factory physically so that they can get access to it. And what you do is you make a connection to the cloud and then you put, you put the IDE software into the cloud. You're basically solving multiple problems at once. One is that you need to run the, the, the software itself on the on a Windows PC, which might be inflexible. I've heard of some companies even, they don't allow anymore to install software on their laptops. They're just going like browser-based only. So problem number one, you can now access everything with the browser. And then problem number two, you can give them continuous access. And then even problem number three, there's only, only the cloud has a connection. You can now exclude people or do access and rights management on, on top on top of that. Completely. You can go much fine grain. You can say that person has uh, read access to three PLCs on that network. The password and username of a PLC. Actually, reality is most PLCs are not password and username. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, because if you don't have a central repository, which we uh, actually are, the risk that there is a production shutdown and you cannot access is quite high. But you can say, okay, there is a network and that person only has read access to three PLCs and write access to only one PLC. And we are just beginning. We can get this down to the level of granularity we want. Yeah? Mm -hmm. That's actually not easily understand because it, it completely turns the whole thing upside down, yeah? basically. But it's in line. Uh, if you want, you could then also have those users that we define. You can also link them to the response uh, to the corporate directory. So, if you, for example, have a third-party supplier for a project of three months, you can ensure that all access rights are cut after the project. Yeah? Or if a automation programmer moves from one factory to the other, yeah? 
that the passwords do not kind of proliferate. <laughs> you have this piling up of excess in, 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 in persons. Yeah, yeah that, that's something we have a lot of very good discussions with our existing customer base. Also, how to move that product forward. We now kind of really uh, had a lot of uh, discussion on PCOps. Let me quickly guide you to the other two mm -hmm. elements that we, that we do. The one thing is those PSC programs are hidden in proprietary files that you need where you need a Windows application to open it. What we provide with what we call versioning, first of all, that you get away from this version management in file name. Yes. We came across one customer that ran out of the file limit of 256 characters because they had everything in the file name. We've seen people that store the versions of PLC programs in SAP systems, all types of stuff. What we basically, first of all, builds, okay, here's a PLC. These are the files that are deployed on it or attached to it. And then what's the versions of the PLC? File name is always the same, but you know exactly who has changed what when. By the way, also with which means, is it in a browser? Was it uploaded and so on? Very basic stuff. But still, it's a proprietary file you cannot log into. You can log into it with the IDE that we mm -hmm. are able to, to have run in the browser and then also can do everything you would do on your laptop. And you are, by the way, also physically connected to the PSC. means you can push deploy. You can look what's happening on the PSC. But you also can just double-click and then we decompose those files. We do this currently for Siemens and for Rockwell PSCs without the need of an IDE. You then see in the browser everything that's there. But PC is a computer that does not even have only have logic. It also has uh, hardware components. It had data blocks to it. It had bus protocols to it and so on. Like there's a huge part of that non-logic. We were able to, first of all, decompose it, make it readable. Yeah? The languages to build logic are not only textual based. It's the 6.11.31. Mm. as the um, ISO norm. There are also graphical languages. We cannot forget that in some areas of the world, there is graphical languages, like one is called ladder logic, that's more like electrical logic aligns how you do electrical cabling in a cabinet. Mm. Yeah, that's very much used in uh, North America. We can show that. And we cannot show that. We can then also compare it to whatever version you want had before. This ties back to what I said. We need to get the people where they are. They have no clue what's deployed on a PLC. They have no mm. clue what did it, who did it. They first of all want to understand what's really the latest version and then what has changed. Yeah, With giving that ability to do this, you have also a couple of use cases. First of all, the risk of changing something goes down because you can always do a rollback. Mm -hmm. You can also immediately, what I did not say, we can deploy through PLCs and we can parallelize this. So you could do a complete rollback of a factory and you know what you do. That's the beginning of that versioning journey. There is already people that um, say, okay, we only pro program in textual languages and then we export and put this to Git. This is also something that we are exploring, yeah? but that will not move the needle because it's only a fraction of the existing manufacturers and machine builders that only do textual languages. So first of all, we are kind of democratizing access to professional version control in the domain that's called 611.31-4 with five different languages where only one is graphically based. Mm -hmm. That's version pro. So PAC ops, then version pro. And the last part is where uh, we've spearheaded a while ago already the uncoupling from 
hardware of the PLCs and the logic of the PLCs, where we partnered with VMware and were the first, to our knowledge, to put like only the software stack of PLCs that one company called Codices. Others are now following, like Siemens, that provides soft PLCs that can run on x86, and then put them on top of real-time hypervisors, in our case from VMware in the start, then get away from, I need to buy those boxes to, hey, mm -hmm. I can also buy a server and I can put 40, whatever number of cores minus one for housekeeping PLCs uh, there, which eliminates the dependency in certain hardware providers. We've seen this in the Corona crisis in the last years, where due to the disruption of global supply chains, those PCs were not available or had delivery times of up to 12 months. So if you're a machine builder and you build mechanical components that are controlled by PLCs, but the PLCs are not there and you're only paid if a machine is working, for mm -hmm. the time PLCs are not there, you make no revenue. Yeah? That's actually company threatening. Yeah? And this, we've seen this now once. Situation got a bit better right now, but we see how dependent factories and machines are on proprietary hardware. And I think therefore it's a, it's a good time to also explore that area of PLC virtualization. And regarding the third part, it's something that interests me and I've already spent some some time on it, like getting into it, the what you said by real time. Because I, I'm personally interested in like how do PLCs how they ensure real-time. I know there is like a real-time kernel patch for Linux so that you can actually guarantee that a cycle is always done every 10 milliseconds or something because the normal processor won't guarantee you this. This is at least like how I understood it. How would you describe it on a technical level? What's the real-time is? And also how you then do it networking and then also with hypervisors. Would be good to get your input on this. What is real-time? Real-time means just in time for a physical process. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Real time is that it's uh, faster than the reaction time of the physical process. Real time in process industries, if a valve takes three minutes to close, like on, a, on, a, on an oil rig or whatever, yeah, real time can be two minutes. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It's really the guarantee that for a certain time span that's required by the process, uh, a certain logic is executed and outputs react to inputs. In discrete manufacturing, discrete is everything you can cut, yeah? from like a fighter jet to any type of consumer packaged goods. Yeah? Process industries, it thinks you cannot stop like a steel mill. If you stop a steel mill, you need to reconstruct it, kill down, reconstruct it. But in, in discrete, what we found a sweet spot is around 10 milliseconds. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So you need to make sure that if you have a control loop that you get way below 10 milliseconds so that you can ensure that the conveyor belt can work with a robot and what have you. Huh? So that's the requirement. Uh, in terms of the technology stack, obviously you need the logic that can be executed on a operating system or if you go on servers currently that, um, where, that can run on a hypervisor with a x86. Uh, virtual machine. As you said, the, the program itself is kind of tweaked in terms of how the, how the processes in Linux are used, but then you really need a real-time operating system. As you said, there is now, I think, good evidence that, that certain types of Unix can reliably perform this. And former times, companies like Bake of have done the same with a meta hypervisor, for example, for Windows. So that's our mm -hmm. sort of problem. The second part is 
real-time hypervisors. And this is where we always had uh, real-time hypervisors from a variety of uh, companies that are kind of very close to, 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 to OT systems, like not very flexible in configuration or not so flexible in during runtime configuration. What we see now, what we saw is that the market leader in IT, VMware, came up with a very capable real-time hypervisor, E6i with a real-time patch. Uh, and then we just tested it out and found that it's way below 10 milliseconds. That's around between three and five milliseconds for quite sophisticated automation tests. Then you still need to see how does the logic in a processor, and in a software on a processor, get to a zero to 24 volt signal, which is mm -hmm. where actuators are steered and their kind of sensors get into a PLC through IOs. And in between that, you have feed buses. Those feed buses have names like Profinet or like Ethercat. Yeah? And those feed buses have real-time requirements yeah? mm -hmm. because they also need to deterministically kind of ship data. Yeah? Let's take Ethercat. That's like every minute a bus comes by, yeah, you, and you need to jump always in the same seat yeah? mm -hmm. because you always have the same place in that protocol for an IO signal to be transformed. Obviously, you need to get from the software PLC through the operating system to the hypervisor to the network interface. And this is where we spend a lot of effort to identify how that works. Yeah? Uh, that would be go way too far. But mm. summing up, we've built a system that solves that problem, solves it reliably. We work with customers. They've tested it. And, and very important, it's also usable for the OT engineer coming back to IT should come to the OT system. Like once you've set it up, a virtual PLC and a real PLC in SDA are exactly the same. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You do not want to have a automation engineer that kind of spent the last three weeks in India uh, to send him on a week on how to configure IT hypervisors. You want one tool huh? where that can easily be done. And this is what we're building. Okay, so coming from the IT side, and you said that you're bringing the DevOps part into the factory. As an IT person or for IT persons, it might be hard to, to understand, like, how is it working currently? I mean, this is like just so daily routine. You're using Git, you're using version control, you have an authentication, authorization system. How can all factories in the world run without it? So how does it work currently? I'll give you a very concrete example, elevated to, the, to a high level problem. First of all, car maker, if a model change comes on Friday, they close the factory, they shut it down, so nothing is produced. 70 people come in, they call it sneaker, sneaker work, uh, network. They work until Monday morning at six. They run from PLC to PLC with their laptop. They have versions on their laptops. They have it some, some, there's a lot of different companies. They do changeovers. Like let's say the car body changes just in width of one millimeter. Everything in that car manufacturing street needs to be adapted. Yeah. Crazy. And then they hard, then some do some unit testing, some not. And then on Monday, they start hard. And then they solve the problems in the running production until we're on Thursday. That, that's what we were, were, were told. We see similar patterns all over the place. So that, that's what happens. Basically, that thing is very often the problem of proper software control is very often in the heads of the automation engineers. Yeah? And by trial and error, that works because these are extremely capable people. 
like extremely capable people and that take the job very seriously. They have a high risk. But the question is, and now it comes a higher level problem, why do we put that risk on people? And the reality is that we have this motion in our hand that manufacturing is stable. As you said, never changes ever. But what do we have in, in, in all other technical systems? Like Netflix has new features every day. Amazon pushes new features three times a minute. And this is now a couple of years old, my knowledge. Yeah? So, and these are not less complicated than modern factories. Yeah? So we need to build systems where you get away from no control to control to automated deployment to automated backup and undo yeah? mm -hmm. so that you de-risk it. Once you de-risk the changes, changes will be more. More changes means more innovation, either in newer products or better processes to, for example, produce with less input factors. And that's our mission. So you know our community, which consists mainly of, out of IT and OT architects who are like on this intersection between IT and OT, like trying to get data out of it. And there it's also about all the systems in between IT and OT, about backupping, etc. Mostly the community consists out of people like this. How can they benefit from using software-defined automation? How could they get, for example, started if they say, hey, this sounds great. I don't only want to have my enterprise IT and don't want to have also my everything in between IT and OT, but also want to have the OT all running the same DevOps way. So how can they get started? So how do they get started? It's very simple. Go to software-defined automation.io. Top right, click start free trial, and you have two weeks of free trial. Yeah? What you then need is your favorite PSC programmer. If you are not your PS, uh, PSC programmer itself, you need a small uh, gateway with Ademia Linux, and then the gateway needs to have a connectivity to the internet and the uh, PSC on the other side. And then that's it. We say that can be done in a couple of minutes. We're also here to help anytime mm -hmm. to your specific question. Software-defined automation for those people might be the perfect interchange ground between the people that program the PLCs, that run the machines, and the OT programmer. There's one thing that I did not manage, mention. We are not building a closed-end software. Everything we do also is, is basically API'd. Yeah? Currently, mm -hmm. or per use case, we're hardening those APIs. What we, for example, did once with uh, colleagues from Amazon Web Services within roughly 30 minutes, we had them connect PLCs, put in a program, and then get the API, and then change the parameters in that PLC from a Python script in their AWS environment, like any other environment. So good example is you have, like, you analyze data, and the data flows in uh, via an OPC UA server on the PLC. You want to change what that PSC sends, could be an API to that, yeah? Or in the simplest way, you could just notify the PSC programmer because you know that it's also used on that PSC, yeah? Because you have access to the same view. You see exactly the same thing in a, in a software-defined manner rather than to need to call who is Joseph online for, yeah? Mm -hmm. In the nutshell. Yeah, yeah. so... Thank you for all of your, your insights and your expertise in the field of, of automation and, and cloud. To the listeners and, and viewers, wherever you, you, you might hear this on Spotify or on YouTube, if you have any questions, feel free to, to comment 
or to contact Josef from Software Defined Automation directly, you can reach him via LinkedIn, or you can just go there and try the try out the free version. If you have any feedback, feel free to put it here in the comments, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Josef. Thank you, Jeremy.